This podcast includes strong language, descriptions of war and deals with issues of trauma and death. I think some of the first shots that were fired actually hit me. I don't remember much gunfire before that. I think a rocket passed, didn't hit us. Another one hit the front of the Land Rover. I remember being top cover and being really angry, like beyond angry, and tears rolling down my eyes. Obviously no one could see as we were driving past, but I just remember being so angry with everybody, everyone in Iraq. It's a good story. I won't forget it. Wow. <laughs> it's a bit hard to forget, isn't it? <laughs> what is it that drives people to be brave? To commit acts of heroism, often in the face of the enemy. I'm Darren Coventry former soldier and now video and podcast producer at BFBS. I've been talking to men and women who've received the UK's highest military honours. We talk about what happened, what they thought at the time and how they feel about it now. This is Tea and Medals. Chris Bamforth, Military Cross... Recipient. How would you take your tea? Tea NATO. Tea yeah. NATO. What's NATO? Two sugars and milk. Nice and simple. Standard. Yeah. Standard, yeah. NATO standard, I think, yeah. is what it used to be called. Chris and I have met before. We worked together in Iraq on Optelic 3 between 2003 and 2004. We are in Basra. Chris was a corporal with the Queen's Royal Hussars and I was a corporal with the Royal Military Police attached to his unit. Chris, also known as Barney, joined the regiment in 1997. It was a bit of a family tradition. Yeah, it was an easy one for me. Um, my father was in the army, uncle was in the army, granddad was in the army, sister joined the army, uncles were in the Marines. So it was inevitable I was going to join the forces. I was going to join the Marines to start with because I went to a, a naval college, but that disbanded and closed down quite quickly. So uh, I ended up uh, wanting to go into the cavalry and follow my dad's footsteps, although he was trying to push me into to re-me so I'd get like a trade and, and have a qualification, but I was adamant I was going to go on tanks. Yeah. And was your dad in the battalion? My dad was in the, in the regiment, yeah. He was, um, he was a bandsman to start with, and then he transferred to tanks thereafter. And my uncle, he was in recce troop in the same regiment, so QRH. And um, did you ever serve at the same time? Or yeah, me and my dad did for a short it? while. So he didn't recruit me because he wasn't allowed to in the Palisades, but he was there at the same time. So I had to call him Sarge very early on. And then when I, uh, when I got to the regiment, he appeared in the cookhouse behind me and gave me a right crack around the top of the head. And being the, the sprog in the in the cookhouse and everyone went, ooh, what's going on? And it was turned around and it was me dad like, you know. So what, what did you get involved in prior to the Optelic tour? What else had you been up yeah, to? Kosovo. Um, so my father did Bosnia, uh, but I did Kosovo. That was my first tour. Uh, and I was in recce troop at the time. And we did battle group surveillance platoon. So we were out in, um, in Podievo. And then we went down to Pristina. But we were, we were scattered all over the place, really, just doing uh, kind of mini ops and reporting back. As well as Kosovo, Chris did a UN peacekeeping tour of Cyprus. And in 2003, we both deployed as part of 20 Army Brigade and Optelic 3, Iraq. In my research, I realised that we served in Alamara and Maysan province at the same time. But this story really begins a few months later in Basra. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Kokup of the Queen's Royal Hussars. At the time of the incident, I was a major commanding B Squadron, the Queen's Royal Hussars, which was part of 20 Armour Brigade, mentoring the provincial level police in Basra. Uh, specifically, we had three elements, 
the Special Operations Directorate, the Serious Crimes Unit and the Tactical Support Group. There was no real normal day. Every day was pretty extraordinary. And we were coming into this towards the back end of the tour. So we had about two months left to go, I suppose. But generally speaking, we'd have a troop or elements from two troops out at all three of those locations, the Special Operations Directorate, the Serious Crimes Unit and the Tactical Support Unit. And they'd be doing a mixture of low-level training, weapons training, some more specialised police training along with the RMP partners that we had with us. And it was really a case of balancing and juggling and making sure that we had the right moving parts in the right places at the right time. Back in 2004, Trevor Gray was a Sergeant Major in charge of B Troop, Queen's Royal Hussars. As a rule, looking after the Special Operations Directive, we were there to mentor and try to bring them on as policemen, but also in the humanitarian role as well. We had RMP attached, uh, which tried to guide them in the policing role, and my troop itself were there basically to try to assist them in their TTPs in uh, counter-terrorism and the sorts like as best as we could. TTPs being tactics, techniques and procedures. So every day, a patrol of British soldiers would go out from Basra Palace to Al Jamiat Police Station in order to mentor the special police. We were told that we were going to go in and, I suppose, look after the, the special police, which was a bit strange to be saying that we were going to look after their, their specialist kind of police. But um, it wasn't quite like that when we got there. They certainly weren't special in that sense in regards to how they did things. And it would probably be cultural differences, but, um, yeah, they were a bit cowboyish. Um, and there was a lot of things that, that were being done with prisoners and stuff that we were a bit uh, uh, not okay with, uh, which we stopped as soon as we got there. But yeah, it was a, a strange one. Yeah, and I think I, I felt some the animosity came when they thought that we were there to sack them, I think. Yeah, yeah. And um, that's when I felt there was a bit of animosity. I don't think we helped ourselves. Have you heard the story about the, the arm wrestle yet? The arm wrestling. That's our producer, Joe Seller, who wanted to know more about the story. When we used to visit the police station, we would bring half a troop of soldiers with us. But effectively, there was only maybe three or four people involved in the actual mentoring. The rest of the guys were just protection for us on the ground, for getting everyone there and back to Basra Palace safely. So, whilst me, Staff Sergeant Gray, and a couple of the others were doing the work inside, the rest of the guys were often just waiting around, smoking, having a brew, that sort of thing, unless they had a specific task. Al Jamiat Police Station was seen as quite a safe location because the Iraqi police had their own security. Then, one day, when there wasn't much going on, a pretty big Iraqi special ops policeman challenged a young tank driver to an arm wrestle. And the young tanky did some damage. I mean, not just broke, properly, you know, it's Snapped wibble wobble. Iraqi policeman's arm off. But what I, the funniest thing about that story isn't actually that happening. It's the fact that that night on the brigade commander's conference call, Nothing else had happened in Basra that day at all. It had been a quiet day. So when the brigade commander was on with the uh, Baghdad general, <laughs> he said, oh, anything to report? He said, uh, one of my tank drivers has broken an Iraqi policeman's arm in an arm wrestling conversation. <laughs> so this, this was kind of Iraq news. So. We had to bring him back to our <laughs> field hospital to get him properly rebuilt. But there was, there was absolutely no hard feeling at all from that policeman. I think when we bumped into him a few days later, he had his arm plastered up, he was happy. That, that was prior to things, uh, the change in, in mood, I think. 
the banter was fine. I think they were they they, were, they felt like they were getting more comfortable with us as, to, as, mm. as the more we turned up. But we were only there for like two hours at a time, weren't we? It was only a, a quick. We're in. Yeah. We do our little bit and then we're back out again. But as Colonel Matt Cocop says, the mood was starting to shift. It was suddenly getting tenser, and you know we alluded to a couple of IDs in the days leading up to this. The relationship I felt with that element of the Iraqi police as well was not good. And, you know, later events that transpired that they'd been infiltrated by Iranian militias. You know, these are the guys that kidnapped the SAS troopers a few months later. Most days were like this. But on one spring day in 2004, things were, well, a little different. 8th of April 2004, we had a uh, normal patrol down to Al Jamia police station to conduct our normal uh, mentoring and advisory role. We had been in the, uh, the station for approximately an hour and a half whenever we were approached by one of the uh, lead policemen uh, within the station who uh, informed me that they had something special to show us. I'm sure they came back in, it was a white van, a Toyota type van or something that they drove in and there was a guy in the back of the white van and they called us over to it, didn't they? So come and have a look at this. And the guy was there in a, with a thing over his head and his, he was all cuffed up. Oh. G'day, mate. <laughs> I think it's that anyway. When I was taken upstairs to their interview room, there was a New Zealand backpacker uh, with his backpack, beard, long grown hair, sat there who had been picked up by the uh, Special Operations Directive and they were wanting to hand them across to us. Pretty strange. Uh, at that time, Fallujah had just kicked off. There was two American contractors had been killed. So it was quite a dangerous place uh, walking through Iraq. And uh, uh, whenever you try to inform the New Zealander that maybe it wasn't in his best interest to uh, backpack around war-torn Iraq, that maybe uh, he should be coming with us, which he uh, put up a bit of a, a fight uh, for us to take him back to uh, Bajra Palace. Uh, but in the end, we did talk him round, and uh, he did. I think what's important to realise there is that it took a long time, didn't it? Yeah. A long, long time to get to that point well, where what he was won. it about an extra hour? I, I think I thought we'd been there four hours by okay, the time so we left, an hour, so maybe an extra, extra two, two hours, hours on top. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, trying to convince the New Zealander that it was in his own best interest uh, took uh, approximately an extra two hours for him to uh, be convinced that he was coming with us. I was doing some work back in the squadron ops room when I got a phone call or a radio message um, from one of the guys up there telling me that the special operations director were holding a Kiwi hitchhiker. I thought it was a wind-up. You know, why, why is there a Kiwi hitchhiker in Basra, which is still a war zone? And getting worse as yeah. a war zone. Yeah. Now, the guys at the special operations directorate were not the sort of people you can leave civilians with. You know, um, it was very fortunate for this New Zealander that my guys were up there at the time, or else he would have probably been disappeared. The Iraqis were adamant they weren't going to release him. We were adamant he had to come back with us. I realised I had to get up there. So I grabbed my rover group, which was about six of us, uh, commanded by Corporal McPovey, uh, in two stripped-down lightweight Land Rovers, and we raced up to the Jamiat, where, sure enough, there was a New Zealand hitchhiker, still cuffed, uh, being interrogated by the Special Operations Directorate. I managed to get hold of the senior Iraqi on the ground at the time and said, look, you know, he's got to come with us. And after about an hour's worth of negotiation, we managed to get him released into our custody when I started planning how we were going to get back. We'd already been there longer than I was comfortable with. You alter your routes, you don't set patterns, you try not to stay in the same place too long. So I told my guys that we were pulling out 
the um, troop elements left first. I thought about where I was going to put the Kiwi, thought I might put him in the back of my wagon and show him what Basra was really like because he was adamant it was safe. But one of my senior NCOs said, boss, you know, you need to keep him safe and undercover. So we put him in the back of the Snatch Land Rover and sent him on the way. So on this day, we usually only be a two or three vehicle patrol, uh, but with the New Zealander being in the uh, police station as well and informing higher, uh, the squad leaders rover group actually uh, came down to find out what was going on. And again, so that added our strength up to a four call sign patrol uh, where we'd normally be two. It's time to introduce two more people. Actually, I want to say characters, because they are. Don't mess it up for Kingy, all right? <laughs> <laughs> My name's Dave King, former member of the Queen's Royal Hussars. At the time of the incident, I was a trooper. And that's about it. I think I was oh, 19, 18, 19 years old then. Um, yeah. Over to you, mate. I'm Curtis Pike. I was a trooper. I was 19 years old in the Queen's Royal Hussars. I was with the squadron leaders and Andover group at the time. So... Nine times out of ten, it was always making sure he was well protected, then going to God knows how many meetings with him. He was then going to go see Shakes. He was trying to win the heart and minds as he could. And obviously the lads on the ground were trying to prove winning the hearts and minds. And Major Kokup was going around just literally speaking to whoever he could and trying to win whatever battles he could verbally. And, and then I suppose we were doing our own little reckeys as well at the time for the squadron. So what does the Rover Group uh, look like? Well, we had... Uh, <laughs> if I, I mean, if I didn't know... What, we what had a bit of the short straw, to be honest with you. So we had, like, the short wheelbase rovers because there was only three people in a rover at a time. We'd always have the driver, the commander, and then obviously your top cover. So there would only ever be three people within the rover. If we had an interpreter with us, which nine times out of ten we did, the interpreter would go in one of the rovers. Or if we had somebody else come with us, whether it was the, um, the SSM or other officers or whatnot else that wanted to come out with a squadron leader then they'd come out so we didn't need the long wheelbase so we always had the short straw and went for the uh, short wheelbase. And what about you Pikey, what was your like specific job at the time? I was a Land Rover gunner, Land Rover gunner? Land Rover driver <laughs> <laughs> and I was the GPMG gunner as well mainly because I had a big mouth so I got lumbered with a GPMG. <laughs> GPMG is a general purpose machine gun sometimes called the General or Jimpy. It's a heavy machine gun, big and bulky. But when the chips are down, you wouldn't want to be without it. A Mini-Me is smaller than a GPMG. It's a 5.56mm ammo weapon, carried at section level. But it's also useful for vehicles that weren't designed to have weapons mounted on them. Well, that was my only day off of the tour, that was. I was well ticked <laughs> off. <laughs> the only day off I had all tour, then we had to end up coming It was down. supposed to be my day off. <laughs> Honestly, the truth of being given our first day off of the old tour, then all of a sudden it went, put your kit on. <laughs> all right, and so we had to bring the medic with us. And the medic was staying in the same room with us because obviously he wanted to make sure that Everything was all right with this Kiwi Because he was a prisoner. Yeah. So, Craziest yeah. guy I've ever met. Well, <laughs> to, to go walking around the middle of Basra. That was impressive. <laughs> so, yeah. And then that was it, really. So we made sure we got the medic ready, which his name was Lee. At the, yeah, Lee. I can't remember his second name. but um, So we got him in the wagon and then off we went and went to go see these guys at the sod. 
He was actually safer on his own. I don't know. I think Ooh, the was... Kiwi guy. Yeah. He probably would. <laughs> if we'd have released him and says, make your own way back, he wouldn't have had a problem. <laughs> um, so take us from there then, Pikey. What happened? Uh, we were at the sod. We'd done a normal day. Yeah. I don't know if you'd been involved in anything else that day or just, you know, outside doing security. That was the last thing I remember, the Kiwi guy. Yeah. Uh, we jumped in the Land Rovers, left the police station. Pulled onto the main road. What was it, Route 6? Normal TTPs. We left the, the uh, police station, which had two steel doors at the front gate, and uh, patrolled out. A couple of boys on the ground just leading the way as we uh, left the station. And then the, uh, the top cover boys jumped back into the, uh, the rovers and we sped off uh, due north, uh, heading towards Route 6. It didn't feel that eerie. Once we all got into the vehicles, we had four vehicles there anyway, which was unusual because it would only usually be two vehicles going in at any one time, but we had the squadron leader with us on this specific day. So there was four vehicles in total. We all mounted up. We started to drive off, but we, we, I think we took the same route that we, we took in, if I remember right. And it was, as you come out, you turn left, you follow all the way down, go through the kind of little chevron, then turn right, and then onto that main road, which is where the contact um, comes into play. And so I don't know if that played a part in it, but um, there was only really two, three routes in. Yeah, there so was. So it's not as if not as if you could have a, a massive amount of choice anyway. And yeah, and as we as we come around the corner, um, we get hit, hit by the um, hit by the RPG. Pulled onto there, we was driving down there, and I just remember thinking something's not right here. It's too quiet. And literally, as soon as I thought that, all hell broke loose. Not the preferred route which we would usually go, and for reasons unknown, that's where the uh, situation slightly got hairy, I would say. <laughs> so, um, flash and small arms fire. So the first thing I knew about it, we'd taken a right out of the Jamiat and then a left heading up towards the main route, which would have taken us down to, I think it was Yellow Four or something like that, um, southern end of the Jamiat area. Um, the troops were on the main drag by this stage. I was still um, 90 degrees to them on a parallel road. An RPG had been fired at very short range and had hit the unarmoured Land Rover, uh, which had the young troop leader in it and Trooper Pike. And there was a lot of small arms fire. It was a mixture of AK-47 and more medium machine gun type stuff, PMK. I think some of the first shots that were fired actually hit me. I don't remember much gunfire before that. I think a rocket passed, didn't hit us. Another one hit the front corner of the Land Rover. Um, didn't go off, that was spinning around in the road. The RPG hits us, I just remember the, just being a, a, almost like a, like a sunset, big glow. That's the, the, the first feeling I got from it. And I didn't even feel like there was anything happening just before it, I, didn't even, I still didn't feel like, the, you know, like some people say they can sense it and something's about to kick in. It hits the, the front of the vehicle uh, and kind of it explodes. Loads of RPK fire and AK-47. And then I just, I just remember hitting, obviously returning fire, but I remember hitting the central reservation and the central reservation was the size of this, this, this uh, table. And as the vehicle hit it, it threw us in the air. And that's when it became a bit like a seven half a movie where everything goes extremely slow. Everything goes very, very kind of gray. Um, and I remember just grabbing hold of my rifle and holding onto the vehicle and being kind of mid-air, 
before collapsing into the vehicle and jumping straight back up again and, and again returning fire into the, the, the kind of general direction because it was really hard to pick out people. As we've come to the junction, you guys have already turned right onto the Route 6. And then, literally, I'm now looking left because I thought, well, if you guys have gone right, I'm looking left, then the only way I can describe it is, is like, you know when you're at the football and you've got the metal shutters up behind you and then, like, obviously you start giving them a tap to get that reaction? That was the sort of noise I heard. It was like a dump. So, literally, automatically, my eyes have gone straight right. And all I seen was this like orange thing spinning on the floor and I thought, it automatically in my head, I didn't even think RPG, automatically in my head for some reason. Obviously I was only young at the time, I just thought, oh, firework. And then obviously as soon as I heard that first round go down, I just thought, fucking hell, there ain't no firework. Everyone described it as a firework. Yeah, honestly, yeah. you know when you have like them, Right, like Catherine wheels. That's the one. Yeah, that's, that's what exactly that's what other people just. I remember at the time as well, people saying it was just going around like a firework. That's it. And then as soon as my eyes have come slightly more right, I've just seen that typical, you know, when you'd sort of see that silhouette of somebody, literally on their knees with the RPG. That's pretty much what I seen then. And then it was like uh, the only way I can describe it is, is you know, when you're on a roller coaster and you get to the top. You've got that suspense of getting to the top and then just as you're about to come down, you have that, that rush of wind over the top of you, don't you, when like, you hear that woof over the top of you. That's pretty much exactly what happened from there. And then from there, I think that the adrenaline just took over that much that I was moving so fast, but everything around me was just, when I say slow, it was like mega slow. Like I'm watching this orange thing now, spark by spark, and I'm watching it so slowly. I'm watching this bloke now put down his RPG. Yeah, I went to carry on driving and we were slowing down. Um, Lieutenant Starkey next to me said, well, why are we slowing down? So I put it in third gear. I realised that my leg wasn't even there. My leg was upside down by the door somewhere. So I was driving with a, from about there, about the stump. Um, I've been hitting both my legs at the top as well. That one, it had blew a big flap off my combats, so it was all, there was no blood. I think it had melted. It was like bubbling and frying like an egg, so I'm not, I think that was a trace around maybe, something. But this one was the one that hurt. There was a hole about that big, and it was all pepper potted, lots of blood, snapped the ligaments as well. Yeah, we carried on, carried on driving. Kept my head down. I'd already seen where the curb was, the central reservation. So I thought if we can get over that, the boys have got some cover at least. We might have a chance. Managed to get over that. That must have been hairy, getting over that. Yeah, I didn't realise how big that curb was. Uh, someone's told me. It was massive. Yeah. You've never seen a central reservation <laughs> like it. Yeah, in my head, it wasn't that big. <laughs> I think we got lucky with that. I, I know people with two feet that couldn't get over that central reservation. <laughs> we didn't have a lot of choice, really. So, yeah, we got us over that. We come to a stop. Everyone piled out and uh, did their thing. I was just sat there, still getting fired at. I thought, if I get out, I'm going to get shot in the backside. And if I stay here, I'm going to get shot. So I was a bit stuck, didn't really know what to do. Uh, Lieutenant Starkey come back, dragged me across the seats. Uh, sat me by the. I just remember my leg dragging like a piece of jelly. Not good. 
Uh, he sat me by the engine block and then everyone disappeared. I could hear gunfire. Didn't know who was winning. Another extraordinary part of this extraordinary day um, and probably not recognised as much as he should have been. He took rounds to his ankle and I think to his thigh, which I think then went through to the other side. And rather than just collapse in a heat in the footwell, as would be totally expected and normal, he got what was left of his right foot, which had been shot twice, once in the angle, once on the top, down onto the accelerator and drove it as best he could out of the killing area before he lost control. And it, thankfully, I think Ed Starkey, the troop leader, got his hand on the uh, handbrake to stop it going into one of those. He managed to get over the the central reservation, probably because it was a stripped down exactly. Land Rover. But also critically stopped it from going into the yeah. crap filled canal <laughs> with all the nasties that yeah. are in there. Yeah. Um, once Pike had done that, that was his job done. I mean, he was, to do that was extraordinary, I believe, and should have been recognized in some way. The fact of the matter was, you know, he was badly injured. It was quickly Kazovac'd. We were then back into a number of serious other operations. And by the time we got back to the UK, we were pretty, or to Germany rather, we were pretty much prepping for the next tour. And a, I, I, it won't be a lone story. I imagine a lot of people have done extraordinary things that have been missed as well. I believe Starkey got Pikey out, but for me, after we landed and we stopped, I carried on firing out of the top and I jumped out and then round the side of the vehicle and then everyone jumped over the top of me. So we had the interpreter in the back with me and, and Mac Mahone, who was the mini-me. Um, my number two sort of thing that was with me and he, he jumped off to the one side and kept having stoppages on his, on his mini-me, of all things. The one time you need a mini-me. My focus at this time was getting comms because this was going to get large, very fast and ugly. Went to get on the VHF radio in my, uh, in my Land Rover. No dice, couldn't get through to anyone. Subsequently turned out that the antenna base was shot out. Tried to get on the PMR. It appeared that we were in a PMR dead spot. So I ended up getting through to the um, ops room on a mobile phone, which is never really ideal. That took quite a lot of time. By the time I finished doing that, I could see that my guys were from the Rover group, um, were still deployed, still occasional fire going down on the position, and Corp Barnforth had started to assault the position across the open road. At that stage then, uh, Corporal Banthos, young Barney, he uh, turns around to me and says, I'm, I'm going forward, uh, I'm going to take the shot. I says, just hang fire just till I get myself in position. But he cracked on, <laughs> he's some boy. <laughs> he sat there and he put a couple of rounds down uh, onto the, the position. Um, and yeah, he, he did uh, take a few of them out. I'm still firing, so I'm firing down in the general direction, but then I'm slowly starting to see I suppose people kind of moving and, and, and I remember taking my sight on one of them and hit him square on and he went down and just remember lots of dust kind of coming up and then uh, I remember him looking up and, and kind of reaching so I took another shot um, which I later found out because I went over there um, had taken a, a big chunk of his, his kind of face off which was awful to see um, and then I, I remember looking back over to the um, the vehicle that they were piling into, which was a white minibus. And I remember just stopping and, and not carrying on. And I think, uh, obviously the reason I didn't carry, they were no longer a threat, but there was something in me that just wanted to keep, keep firing because of what they'd just done to us, if you know what I mean. 
and that plays on me a little bit actually afterwards that um, that I didn't do anymore. I should have. I, I probably. I felt like I should have finished the job in a sense, but I would have probably been in jail for doing that. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is this is what I think sets professional soldiers apart from insurgents and uh, terrorists is that your professionalism stopped you, even though you're, you know, your gut was saying to go on. Yeah. Um, because you, you're a professional soldier, you know? And actually, it's not like Hollywood, is it? <laughs> no, no, certainly not. When I got over there, the guy was on the floor, I got um, one of the, the artillery guys to cover. I could see uh, Kingy down on the right hand side, so just round the corner where the um, squadron leaders vehicles were, where, where I think it was uh, Mick Povey and, um, and Kingy that were putting some rounds down as well. So we had a, quite a good, you know, I suppose range of fire going down into that position. Um, but I could see them and then and the guy was on the floor and I remember saying cover him because again, as part of training, uh, we were told that they might have the grenade underneath them and you turn them over first and check. So we did, we did all the things that, you know, uh, kicks in. So turned him over, yeah, clear. Okay, so he's clear. And then I remember just looking at him and his eyes were huge. It was like desperate for life sort of thing. And um, obviously his face, had, his face was missing. I, and and I, I got a first field dressing out, tried to attend what I could. I didn't, I, to be honest, I completely forgot about the chest. I didn't even put a first field dressing on the chest. I was more, more about trying to cover the face because of the, the, how bad it was. Um, and then I think everything started to speed up a little bit and, and, and come back into play. I do remember Major Cocup coming back round and talking to me and he was gonna go and we were gonna go and start picking up the weapons and things and then we both decided actually wait a minute like I said before the, the with the extra IEDs we need to call someone in to come and have a check of that. I'm now yelling at Barney to get back so we can reorg. Meanwhile it's clear Trooper Pike's in a bad way. Corporal Taylor and I can't remember if Corporal Taylor was in your wagon or Pike's wagon was a another yeomanry guy attached to the squadron. Ex-regular but that had been yeomanry for some time, was giving first aid to Trooper Pike. I think that probably saved, if not his life, certainly his leg. Ed Starkey, the troop leaders, realised that his, the map that he was holding is riddled with bullet holes, uh, and it looks like a colander, uh, so he had a lucky escape. And after a period of time, and I've got no idea how long, but I don't think it was too long, Frank Cannon's warriors turn up from the Royal Regiment of Wales, and they were the QRF operating out of the palace and I've really been so happy as to see a warrior rock up on that day. I then remember going back over to the vehicle and, and helping fix the tyre as well on, on our vehicle so we could get it back on the road. I remember helping getting Pikey into the back of the vehicle. I remember going back and talking to Pikey as well. It was a long day for me. I can imagine. So what do you remember from... Uh, all of it, I think. Waited for everyone to turn up. Someone was on the radio giving the wrong name. Don't know who that was. Even though it was right on my jacket. <laughs> um, I think you gave me another shot of morphine. I remember being in the back of the warrior. You were, you said to me, "Give me more," <laughs> and I think you'd already had two. Good stuff. I like that. And, uh, good stuff. And the, the warrior took a while to get there. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. And you were like, "Give me another one. Give me another one." Can you remember someone saying, "Can you stand up?" No. <laughs> Are you joking? People had to hold me down. Well, they put my leg back in Onto the where it should be yeah. and sort of put a splint on it, I think. And then someone said, do you think you can stand up? <laughs> I hope that wasn't one of us. That must have been one of the, of the Welsh. 
I remember being in the ambulance and they put a screen up oh, yeah, in we, front we, of my we legs. Took, we took you out and put you in the ambulance. That's yeah. What we did. Took you out of the worry and put you in the And ambulance. I said, can someone get me a smoke? I need a smoke. And they said, you can't smoke. You're not allowed to smoke. I said, I'm going to die anyway. Just well, give I, me a I smoke. do actually remember that because that come on the PRR then, didn't it? Yeah, Same Barney ran back. Yeah. That was, that was before they put me in the warrior, that was. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't, to be fair, I didn't even know that was you then who'd been it. Yeah. Because I did. Because even when we went up, I was uh, like, yeah, I don't want to know yet. I don't want to know who's been up. Yeah, tell me about Chris. What kind of what kind of bloke was he on the tour? Annoying. <laughs> always happy. <laughs> always trying to do his best. Yeah. Always wondering why no one else was as happy as him. Yeah. So but he was always awesome. always he was God's awesome. gift. Yeah. Always God's gift. No one was better at rugby than him. Nobody was better looking than him. Nobody had better air than him. What do you think about what Chris did that day? You know, obviously you're probably either having a smoke or on morphine by that stage. I can't. But I didn't know at the time what he'd done, but I can't believe that he ran back to put a smoke in my mouth and to tell me that it was just a scratch. Is that what he said? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which. I wasn't happy about it at the time, I'll that, be honest, because it wasn't a scratch. That's standard first aid, uh, someone first aid had, Matt, isn't it? Like, someone in his family had told him that it was a good idea to say that because it had happened to his uncle or his granddad. Yeah, wasn't that to do with the... Yeah, so he just thought he'd yeah. just pass that information on. It wasn't great. He shouldn't say that next time. A piker remembers you coming back to give him a smoke. He was... Yeah, I, I think I gave him a fag. Impressed. It was unusual because I never got cigarettes, yeah. I get the mic taken out of me for that. Um, but did he tell you about what I said about his leg? Yeah, he it's did. A he said, flesh it's just a little scratch. Yeah, he said it's a little scratch. It's only because, and I remember my granddad got shot in Northern Ireland in his legs, and his mate at the time said to him, don't worry, it's a scratch in there. And he relaxed a little bit more, and he says that that's what got me through. So I thought I needed to do the same thing. And I said, it's a scratch, and, and clearly Pikey could see it, it chuffing wasn't a scratch. There's nowhere near. He's already seen the bottom of his, of his shoe, if you know what I mean. Um, I think he told me to F off and gave me a few strong words, of which I went, and here's one of my secret cigarettes. <laughs> That'll keep you happy. I mean, what goes through your mind straight after that? So you said you did what you did, you come back, you run around, you know, go back into, I suppose, junior NCO mode, like, you know, get everything squared away, get everything sorted. But then at some stage you must... Yeah, you I must had, run out of adrenaline at some stage. Yeah, and, and the worst thing is it was on the way back. It wasn't actually... In, so it's not a case of I got back into camp and then I felt safe. It was on, I remember being top cover and being really angry, like beyond angry, and tears rolling down my eyes. No, Obviously no one could see this because I'm on top cover and, and maybe people in the street could see as we were driving past, but I just remember being so angry with everybody, everyone in Iraq. It was like, you know, I'd, I'd be, we were out there trying to do something that was good and to treat us like this, and it was, and I, and I kind of, I just, pure anger. I just remember being really, really angry, crying loads, um, and then getting back into camp, and then I kind of, you know, as we got to the vehicle, like man up type thing, you know, and move away the tears, and, and then got even more angry at the fact that we had um, a New Zealand backpacker, because that's why we were out there longer, so we all got angry at that. I think everyone was angry at the New Zealand yeah, backpacker. Yeah. And it, it just took ages to, to settle and sink in. I remember lots of people kind of talking to me. I remember having interviews with RMPs, so this is probably the fourth one I've had now about this. <laughs> so there was three interviews, wasn't there, we had to do. So there's yeah, one, I, one, I, one on the scene. Yeah. There was one on the scene, wasn't there? There was one as soon as we got back as a group, and then there was another one after that. Later, soldiers from the Royal Military Police went back to the scene to investigate what had happened. 
they found themselves in the centre of a full-on public order riot. The backpacker, well, he spoke to officials from his embassy in Kuwait, and then he left the country. And for Chris, there was very little time for him to process or reflect on what had happened. That night, he was informed that the insurgent who he had shot and treated had died at the military hospital in Shaiba. Bizarrely, close to Pikey, who was also being treated there. The insurgency in Iraq was gathering pace, and north of Basra, in a town called Nasiriya, things were getting serious, with the Italian troops there effectively under siege. Chris's unit had received orders to re-roll and prepare their tanks for a fight. Basra Palace wasn't being left out of the action either, and that night came under heavy mortar fire. Well, yeah, we got rushed in because we were going to get mortar that night, and then yeah. so I didn't really have a chance to kind of even relax, relax and contemplate yeah. it. I remember sitting outside and Blakey coming up and having a smoke with me, put his arm around me and said, "Everything will be right," sort of thing. Those sort of moments, and there was loads of guys that kind of did that with us. But then, yeah, then it kicked into guess what, guys? We're getting ready to go to Nasiriyah. <laughs> yeah. So we were we were back getting our wagons ready and sticking armor on our wagons and bolting all the yeah, armor so, on. Which so no time to contemplate or to think about it too much. It's you know straight back to a different kind of business, but back to business. None at all. I remember Major Cocup coming along and saying that, um, explaining that the guy had died, but we were on tops of wagons. We were sweating. We had oil all over us, and we were trying to get the wagons ready. But I remember him coming up to us and saying, um, "That guy's died in in hospital now," sort of thing. Um, but yeah. And um, I guess some time went by. A lot of time might have gone by before you were informed that you were getting a Yeah, I thought that was it, done and dusted. And um, yeah, um, it was Paddy's Day, I got told. Was it? Yeah. Yeah, Paddy's Day is quite big in your Yeah, 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 very big big in our regiment. Um, Major General Denaro, I think, had come down as well. So it was very, very kind of surreal, strange. Got called in, marched in. Salute without my berry what, what and got all confused and, and all, all those sort of things. Kind <laughs> There's of only two in. reasons to get marched yeah, in. I'm yeah. in trouble or I've done Yeah, exactly. Good. And they said that, I think they said that at the beginning before they told me. There's only Messing two reasons. Around. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and I was trying to wrap my oh, wait a minute, when have I been out on the pop and what have I done wrong? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and you, obviously, what did you think? I got, I got told, and, and to be honest, it didn't sink in straight away because Military Cross wasn't really widely heard of, if you know what I mean, within uh, the, uh, the ranks, I suppose. And as I came out, I remember um, uh, the RSM saying, you do know what this means, right? And I was like, yeah, tell me a bit more, sir. And he told me, and I was like, oh my God, right, okay. And I remember, I do remember sprinting across the parade square and trying to phone uh, the wife at the time to go, oh my God, you know, this has happened. Yeah, and obviously with your family connections to, yeah. the, to the army and to the regiment, what, what did your, your dad and your uncle and... Yeah, they were all chuffed a bit. Yeah, all chuffed a bit. So I didn't really tell him the story of uh, as such until a little bit later on um, about how it all came about. But um, yeah, they were chuffed. Yeah, definitely, my dad, my dad certainly, and my granddad as well. Yeah, um, and my two uncles in the Marines. So it's funny actually because I can talk about it quite a lot, and, you, and hopefully you kind of notice that I'm, I'm quite willing to talk about it. Um, it was my uncle Gary who served in the Falklands, and I remember him telling me that it's good to talk, um, but to talk about it, otherwise it'll eat you up inside. And he's got PTSD, so he suffers from from stuff that he saw in the Falklands. So that, I remember bringing, that ringing true uh, and giving him a phone call whilst I was out there as well. Um, so I've always been quite quite easy to talk about, I suppose. Helps. Yeah. 
What date did it happen? <laughs> well, you asking me that for a just, specific just reason. Just wondering if, you, <laughs> the, if you've got a tattoo, Chris. The eighth of April. <laughs> that was Kingy that told me that as well. So I thought I had the right date, and I told Kingy, uh, "It is that date, isn't it, that, that it happened?" And he went, "Oh no, 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 no. It's definitely the, the, the I think it was the yeah the twelfth. So I went and got a tattoo of the military cross on me, and I. And I put the date on there, but it was to hide my ex-wife's name originally right. and to put a new date, and it was the date of when I got kind of married. So it would have worked well if it had been this date. <laughs> Clearly not. Yeah, I got it wrong. So you got the wrong date yeah, tattooed on your arm because Kingy pulled a fast one on you. He did, yeah. <laughs> and every time I go out for a drink, he takes the mic out of me for well, it as well. Well, he, he asked me I to. I kind of want to keep it on now just for that for that. Yeah, because it's a story in itself, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and then I suppose that the last bit about the whole story is you, you went to get your medal from somebody somewhere yeah where? the queen Buckingham palace now that was that was very very strange i've got a video i've got the dvd of it um which i didn't get originally and my partner now went and got it for me and, and found the, the dvd which is amazing um yeah what a day it was it was really strange so I, I remember the main part of it i remember being in the gallery room and there's lots of people getting awards that day um and i remember um humphreys who played for ireland fullback he was in there, um, a few famous people that you kind of notice and lots of big wigs and it's like, oh my God, there's me, there's Lance Corbin, Barn Forth, you know what I mean? <laughs> no. Oh, it was, it was strange. I remember when my name was called up and I, and I kind of walked out. Um, Is it got, the whole walking up to the stage? With yeah, the yeah. You get told you need to march out, yeah. stop, you'll stop next to me, I'll have a chat with you, I'll tell you to move forward, you'll move forward, you take a turn to the left, you walk forward, you, you kind of bow, you walk forward again. Um, she'll speak to you, shake hands, and then you, you take a step back, bow, and then kind of walk out again. And it's mam or mom, and then you're trying to get it all kind of right. Um, Mama's in jam, and, and yeah. <laughs> um, but I but I remember as I as I turned, the queen's really quite small, um, and I was quite overwhelmed by the fact that how small she was. And I remember taking a couple of breaths to go, oh wow, okay, <laughs> you know, it was uh, it's one of those. Um, but she spoke to me for quite a bit and she recited the kind of story quite quickly. Apparently she has got an uncanny memory for names and people. And so That's it wouldn't impressive. surprise me if she had been told exactly and, and remembered. Yeah, so she definitely remembered the story and, and, um, and then she shakes your hand, but she shakes your hand quite forcefully. And she she kind of pushes your waist to say as a remind. It felt it felt quite rude, but it's not. It's it's intended as in you need to take a step back now, and, and that's the next thing you need to remember okay. because a lot, I can imagine a lot of people so it's freezing. Not, it's not her first time. No, her first time. Yes. <laughs> I've got a little video. Oh my god! Hello. Brilliant. Uh, so let me uh, let me let you watch. To uh, actually come into the police station where we're doing mentoring, teaching first aid, teaching them how to do the weapons shows and everything else, and then come into that teaching sort of role and then go straight into combat. It was outstanding. Really, really good drills and skills. Uh, and uh, what he did that day was, uh, yeah, it impressed me throughout. Courageous, instinctive, everything you really expect one of the guys in what you think is the best squadron and the best regiment to do. If they had fired an RPG at the call signs, uh, you know, there, there could have been catastrophic uh, casualties. We had put down a lot of fire. We know they had heavy casualties. But by going on the offensive like that, it sent a very clear message that we weren't there to be preyed upon. We were going to react aggressively to any future ambush situations. Yeah, it was great. It was, it was really, it was, it was an honour to actually serve with Barney. He was, he was a good boy and he deserved everything he got. Well done, Barney. <laughs> Quality. So, drop your onion. I've been called Barney as well. It's like, it's great to, to hear that. 
That's uh, really, that's lovely to hear that, to be yeah. honest. I asked Pikey and Kingy what they thought when they heard Chris was being awarded the military cross. I'd never heard of anyone having one before. It was, yeah. it was all new to me, really. I've never really come from a military background at all. So, I mean, once, once the incident had finished and whatnot, apart from worrying about yourself, obviously, Pikey, for me, that was, it finished. So, if anything, happy that the story's still going to be told. Happy that that story's now gone down in the regimental history as well, because it was the I first think he's the first the ever first military MP, cross, yeah. yeah, within the Queen's Royal Desire. So, I'm happy. I'm happy that the story's told. I'm happy that Chris has been like, I don't even know what word to use here, but awarded the military cross for everything that had happened that day. I mean, it's obviously not just Chris's story, it's obviously Pike's story. If, if Pike hadn't have done what he'd done, then I don't know what would have happened that day. If he hadn't have got that rover over that central reservation, especially with the injuries he's had, it could have gone a lot worse. So for what everyone did and then for what Chris did, I'm glad it's had that, that stamp really of saying this was, what's the word again to use here, that this event was something special as, as special can be for a contact really. It's a good story. I won't forget it. Wow. <laughs> it's a bit hard to forget, isn't it? <laughs> so, what makes what Corporal Balmforth did that day worthy of a military cross? It all depends on who saw what happen and how it's written up for the Honours and Awards Board. Well, luckily for Corporal Balmforth, Colonel Matt Cocop did witness his actions and did write it all down. An extract from Corporal Balmforth's citation reads that Corporal Christopher Balmforth, aged 24, was awarded the Military Cross for his part in an ambush in Iraq. A rocket-propelled grenade lodged in his Land Rover, but didn't detonate. The driver of the vehicle was then hit by small arms fire, which left him incapacitated. With enemy fire still coming at them, Corporal Balmforth led a small team to overrun the position, killing three of the five enemy and seriously wounding a fourth. In line with his military training, he gave first aid to the wounded militiaman, whilst the other troops cleared the situation. An extract from the citation read, he was instrumental in protecting his comrade's life and regaining the initiative in very dangerous circumstances against overwhelming odds. Tea and Medals by BFBS Creative is presented by Darren Coventry. You can find out more about this episode at forces.net slash tea and medals. Tell us what you think. Email us at podcasts at bfbs.com. Tea and Medals is written and produced by Josella Waldron and Simon Thornton. Edited by Andy Prada with sound design by Mark Pittam. Our executive producer is Alex Griffiths. With thanks to Chris Barnforth, MC, Lieutenant Colonel Matt Cocup, Major Trevor Gray, Curtis Pike and Dave King. Cool. It's well, hard to do. I'll tell you what, I thought we'd smash the banter. That was hard to do banter over, wasn't it? Uh, it's getting a balance between serious and dickhead. I've never been able to get that balance right, to be fair. Never. Can we take these off now, then, yeah? <laughs>